0: If you've got a Bible, turn me to James chapter 2. We've been doing a series on the book of James. Uh, just to say, while we're sat here, offering baskets may come round. Uh, they're the white things. If you're new or visiting, just ignore them, pass them around. Uh, all the money that goes into the offering baskets is being given to our international mission partners in Nepal and in Myanmar. Uh, also, just a heads up, next week, next Sunday, we're very excited. Lisa Samuelson from the Yangon Vineyard in Myanmar is going to be speaking, uh, telling us and giving us an update as to all the stuff that's going on in Yangon. There, As we said a couple of weeks ago, they're planting a church in Mandalay, uh, and they're doing some fantastic work rescuing particularly young girls, young women from uh, the sex industry in uh, Southeast Asia. So coming on to that, that'll be amazing. Uh, James chapter 2. There's there's still lots and lots of debate, there probably always will be, about whether Britain uh, can ever be a classless society. Baroness Thatcher, um, she once said that class is a communist concept. The more you talk about class, or even about classlessness, the more you fix the idea in people's minds. Uh, Prince Edward said, we are forever being told that we have a rigid, class structure. Well, that's a load of codswallop. You might say that. George Orwell said of Great Britain, he said it's the most class-ridden country under the sun. John Major, he became Prime Minister I think in 1990, he proclaimed, we will make the whole of this country a genuinely classless society. That was a little while ago. How are we doing? Uh, A a chap called uh, Harry... Wallop. He, he, he wrote a book a few years ago, it's called Consumed, um, How Shopping Fed the Class System. Now Harry Wallop, he is, he, he, he's written this book and he assures us that his father's title as the younger son of an earl is about the lowliest one that you can get. Uh, Harry, growing up, his greatest fear at prep school was the uh, local comprehensive boys who used to lob cans of Coke onto the... Uh, eighth green of the prep school's golf course, uh, so he's not exactly uh, a pauper himself, he wrote, he's written this book, it's called Consumed, and he's essentially he's arguing that the classless society, dreamt up by prophets, you know, like John Major um, and Karl Marx, hasn't come into fruition, and nor, in his opinion, will it ever. And he does kind of, you know, we're all constantly kind of creating new sorts of categories for people. We love to categorize everybody. Uh, He says that um, a change has taken place because we now have a consumer society. And that class no longer depends so much on um, how you came across your money, how you earned it, or how you (laughs) inherited it. Um, But that it's defined now much more on how you spent. What you have, and so he identifies a whole new kind of uh, set of groupings, and uh, right at the top uh, he describes uh, the, what he calls the Portland privateers these are like the, these are like the international super rich they 're named after the private clinic where they like to give birth to the, the Hermione's and the Crispins of this world uh, Pine, the, 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 the Portland privateers these are like the banking class, they're, they're incredibly wealthy, they live in little pockets of West London and North London, they're more likely to meet their neighbours when they're skiing in Stad than they are down the local pub. Uh, and then he comes across another group of, rock, uh, another group of uh, people, he calls them the rockabillies, and uh, these are the sort of tatler-reading, public schoolies, red, chino-wearing, not looking anywhere right now. Um, named, they're named for the the Cornish town of Rock, uh, upon which they certainly used to descend uh, upon it like locusts every summer. And 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 the role of this chap, he's got a a sneaking affection for them because they're sort of he says that they're sort of sort of effortless and really thoughtless, actually about their pleasures, you know where they. Buy their rugby shirts from, you know, because that's what you do. Uh, and then in the middle, coming down to the middle, you've got the Middleton classes, uh, obviously named more after Carol than after Kate. Uh, and they're essentially the sort of the, the lower middle classes, you know, done good, you done good. And then you've got the Sunskittlers, and these are like the tabloid readers. Um, apparently, they're unironic players, un- un- unironic players of uh, Skittles. Uh, they seem to be content to remain, uh, to, do, to, remain to do so. Uh, they're the cheerfully often fake-tanned types. Um, these really are sort of the offspring of a generation that bought their homes under Thatcher, if anyone can remember that far back, and um, seem to be doing quite well uh, as a result. And then you come down, he's got, he describes what he calls the Asda mums. These are the sort of mums who really worry about what um, their children are going to eat. And so the mums eat sort of tinned food so that their children can eat branded treats. And then bringing up the rear, he's got this um, category he describes as the bling-dripping um, hyphen-leads. And he describes them because of the proliferation of the new kids' names that are sort of emerging, like Demi Lee, Chelsea Lee, Tee Lee, Katie Lee, and so on and so on and so on. And then uh, there's there's another group that I haven't mentioned, and this is a group of people who he says usually turn their noses up at the whole thing, and he describes them as the sort of wealthy, liberal, uh, butcher, block owning tamarind paste, acquiring fiddly Italian coffee pot using folk that he calls the wood-burning stovers, just in case anyone has one of those. Um, These are the people who like to wander around in Birkenstocks. (coughs) Um, (laughs) Steady. Uh, Like to eat from organic veg boxes, and he says to them, don't be fooled, you're up to your neck in the class system too. If you've got a Bible, turn me to James chapter 2 and let's see what James has to say, what the Bible has to say that might help us on this whole subject. James chapter 2, the words should miraculously appear on the screen. My brothers and sisters, believers in our Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich are exploiting you? And Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, your sin, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. In uh, Galatians chapter 3, Paul writes this. He says, So in Christ Jesus, you're all children of God through faith. For you were all, all of you who were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourself with Christ. You put Christ on. Therefore, because you put Christ on, paraphrase, there is neither Jew nor Gentile slave nor free, nor is there man and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And you kind of read a sentence like that, and it's like you can't imagine, I mean, that kind of rocks society today, let alone how much of an impact that would have had on first century society. And in, in one stroke, it demolishes every form of social discrimination that the ancient world knew and engaged with the nationalism between the, the Jews and the Greeks, the feudalism between slave and master, the sexism between male and female, all of it is outlawed. And you kind of think, well, how, how is that outlawed? Is it by some kind of uh, re- uh, revolution? Does that, did that come about through some kind of legislation? And uh, the answer is no. It, it wasn't that these social distinctions no longer existed, but... For Christians, for followers of Jesus, they no longer mattered. They no longer mattered because a new society had been formed, had been established, that that transcended and superseded all of those old rules. And that society was the fellowship of the Spirit, the church of Jesus Christ. We'd become one in Christ Jesus. And so when you're looking at the New Testament, writers of the New Testament like uh, Paul and James and, and others this notion of a classless society it, it wasn't just some utopian dream they, they actually expected to see it happen and they, they're pretty indignant as James is here when they see it not happening as it should and that's why James chapter 2 came to be written he says my brothers and sisters believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism and then he goes on and gives this story about Two people walking in, and how they are treated. And so you've got class prejudice, alive and kicking, in, in the one place that it had absolutely no right, even to, so much as to darken the door. And uh, true, the word James uses in, in, in verse 2 for meeting, he, he uses the word synagogue, not ecclesia, which... Uh, has led some people to kind of question and to speculate whether he's referring to a Jewish gathering or a a Christian gathering. But it's most likely um, in the first century that word synagogue could have been used for any kind of assembly, and it seems unlikely that James would be speaking of your meeting in verse 2 unless he had a specifically Christian meeting in mind. Uh, And the picture that he paints here in chapter 2, it's very easy for us to imagine. It's very easy for us to put ourselves in this story, in this image because um, what we've got here is Christians that are gathered together for a meeting uh, and it's not too dissimilar to, to this one and um, probably just like this one at the door there are stewards and they're probably wearing you know um, nice blue t-shirts saying welcome or something like that uh, and, and they're there to, to welcome newcomers and to make them feel welcome and to show them to a seat and to introduce them to people so that they don't just sit there on their own, feeling like a lost spare part. Uh, and and, and they, they tell them about the life of the church and how they can connect with the life of the church so they don't miss out on what's going on. And, and, and this is what's happening. And, and, and simultaneously, two visitors walk in. One is obviously dripping with wealth. Clearly a gentleman, he's probably, you know, maybe a a Roman aristocrat or something like that, who knows. Uh, The other is equally conspicuous, but for the very opposite reason. Everyone can tell from his sort of ill-fitting, threadbare, slightly aromatic clothing that uh, this chap's kind of right on the bottom rung. He, He might even be a slave. And the guys on the door, it could be any of us in the room, to our shame allow our attitudes towards these two people to be shaped by the prejudices of the secular environment that we're supposed to, as followers of Jesus, left behind, rather than demonstrating and extending the undiscriminating welcome of the church of Jesus Christ, of whom we are supposed to be representatives. And according to James, this isn't just bad manners. It's not just, it's not just rude. But this is a a tragic denial of everything that the Church of Jesus Christ stands for. And because he's helpful, he kind of outlines three reasons why uh, any such discrimination, whether it's based on class, nationality, skin color, gender, sexual orientation, whatever, why it is not appropriate in the Church. And it's not appropriate because, first of all, it's inconsistent with faith in Jesus Christ. The second thing is it ignores God's special concern for uh, people. And thirdly, it flouts God's law of love. We're going to tackle those. So, it's inconsistent with faith in Jesus. Discrimination of any kind is not compatible with, it's not uh, consistent with faith in Jesus. Verse 1, he says, My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. You know, you think back to um, Harry Wallop's categories. You know, which category would Jesus have belonged to? You know, was Jesus a Portland privateer? Was he a a, a rockabilly? Like, was he a wood-burning stover? You know, just think about it. Just think about Jesus for a moment and what we know to be true about Jesus. Jesus constantly chose to mix with, like, the poorest of the poor. Jesus never owned Anything. Certainly not home. Uh, he had no means of transport. He, he literally went everywhere on foot. He kind of had an occasional donkey. And yet Jesus is the Lord of glory. He's the incarnation of divine majesty. Nobody of higher rank has ever walked the earth. And yet Jesus lived without a single status symbol to his name. How, is what James is asking, can it be compatible to believe in this humble carpenter from Nazareth? And yet at the same time, while we profess that faith, to be discriminating against people or between people based on their class or their race or their gender or their sexual orientation or whatever it may be. James is saying, how is that possible in his own inimitable style? And James basically says, it's not. It is not compatible. It is inconsistent with faith in Jesus Christ. If we're professing faith faith in Jesus Christ and discriminating in those ways, there's a problem somewhere in our belief system. And what he's saying is that on the one hand, you know, we boast, we brag We tell everyone about Jesus and how amazing he was and how he would hang out with prostitutes and tax collectors and sinners and like the dregs of society. Jesus was like a hero. And then, on the other hand, we ourselves are treating those same people that Jesus, if he were on the earth now, would have counted as his dearest friends, we treat them as if they're something that we've just stepped in. And James is saying... Come on, guys, that's just not on. It's not compatible with the faith we profess. And so James asks in verse 4, Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Brothers and sisters, believers in our Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Any kind of attitude of discrimination is inconsistent with faith in Jesus. Secondly, it ignores... Discrimination it ignores God's special concern. God has special concern for the outcast, for the poor, for the last and the least and the lost. Have a look at verse 5. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters. Has, God not, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. You see, it's... The outcast, it's it's those that we sort of shun, it's those people we don't really quite know what to do with. It's the homeless, it's the mentally ill, it's the refugee, it's the immigrant, and on and on and on. Such are the poor in the eyes of the world in which we live. And yet God, according to James, has chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world To be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him. You may be familiar with the story of um, Babette's Feast. Does that ring any bells? Um, There's a French refugee, Babette. She's she's kind of fleeing war-torn France. And she she begs two puritanical Danish sisters to take her in so that she can cook and clean for them. Uh, And then uh, it's around the time of the sisters' uh, father's birthday. that the, The sisters decide to hold a small... Uh, and very sensible. These, these sisters are very puritanical, They're very sensible, very pragmatic. They do everything right. Uh, they're going to have a very small and sensible uh, tea party. And, and they, they say, tea and coffee and no food. It's going to be wild. And Babette, she's, ha- she's had some uh, unexpected good fortune. She asks the sisters to allow her to throw um, a, a party, to take charge of the celebration. Now, um, Unlike the, 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 the sisters, the sisters lead a very s- simple, stoic life in the dark and dank that is Denmark. And uh, Babette, she's, she's, she's a Catholic. She, she's a foreigner. She's a stranger. She represents all of the seductions of the sultry south when she came. And, and so reluctantly and somewhat kind of um, terrified as to what she might actually do, the sisters allow her to go ahead and of course Babette prepares this feast of a lifetime just incredible, it's this vast overly indulgent banquet, incredible feast for the family for the church, for the village, for everyone and it's the story of the poor widow who gave her all, she had nothing and what she had, she gave see, God has chosen the weak things of this world to shame uh, the strong and the whites. Why, ask James, why are we so tempted to esteem the rich? Why, when we're looking at these categories, it's like, you know, we all want to be a secret, we want to be a Portland privateer. What is that about us? And, and, and James is saying, you know, isn't it the rich who are exploiting you? Like, uh, you know, aren't they the ones who are dragging you into court? Aren't, aren't they the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? He says, insult the um, outcast. When we insult the poor, when we don't honor the poor, um, we're we're insulting the very people that God principally intends are going to participate in his kingdom. Has God not chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? So discrimination is inconsistent with faith in Jesus. it, It ignores God's special concern, the heart that he has, particularly for the poor and the outcast. And then lastly, it flouts God's law of love. Have a look at verse 8. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. And broadly speaking, the world has got two approaches, I think, to the the class problem. Um, Socialism sort of wants to destroy the rich and, and create... Uh, economic equality, and and the moderate sort of response is to use taxation, and the the more extremist answer is to achieve that uh, with the gun. And the trouble is, as we have seen through history, in practice it's very hard to uh, achieve total economic equality because what happens is that that new elites emerge all over the place. Uh, You kill the czar. Look back to your Russian history. You know, 1917, you kill the Tsar and his aristocratic family only to inherit a new tyrant who, when he laughs, respectable senators burst into laughter, and when he cries, little children die on the streets. Capitalism, on the other hand, has said, no, 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 the answer isn't to destroy the rich. We don't want to do that. Um, Rather, what we need to do is we give everybody the opportunity to get rich themselves. Because being rich is like the most important thing. Competition, that's the answer. But the trouble with that is, uh, by creating social mobility, you don't create um, a classless society. You just get greater division uh, with as much potential for separation and alienation. Anyway, according to James, the Christian answer is neither revolution nor competition. The Christian answer to all of this is love. Love. What Jesus does, so James says, is, is to create a society with like a whole new value system, a brand new uh, currency, one in which um, human dignity isn't measured by possessions. It's not measured by what we have. See, what the Bible says is that we are, we are important and we have dignity no matter what our economic or financial circumstances are are. Rich or poor are all loved not because of what we have but because of who we are this law of love is is the fundamental presupposition of the kingdom of God it's the law of the king which is why James in verse 8 calls it the royal law Uh, what must I do to inherit eternal life? an expert in the Old Testament, asks Jesus. And Jesus responds, as you know, uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest commandment. And the second is, is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And then Jesus goes on and he tells the story of the good Samaritan. Really to illustrate, um, I think, just how hard it can be to do this stuff in practice you see because the bible doesn't tell the jews just to love their fellow jews the bible doesn't say christians just love all the other christians it doesn't say just get along with the people who are like you who talk like you who went to the same schools as you, who have the same successes and anxieties as you, what some people unpleasantly call PLUs, people like us. The Bible doesn't commend us to a life of PLUs. Oh, I'll just hang out you know, with the people I understand and with people who understand me so we can talk all about the same things in all the same places. The Bible says, love your neighbor. And as the story of the Good Samaritan eloquently demonstrates, that means anybody and everybody all the time. <laughs> this means anyone, anyone who, whose path crosses mine, anyone whose path crosses as anyone and everyone who interrupts my journey. That's who Jesus is talking about. You know, I think the only way that Christians get rid of their enemies uh, really is by making them their friends. Um, We're not free to despise people. We're not free to discriminate against people. We're not free to disregard people. We have been called to love them and serve we're loving James, aren't we? It's awesome. It's amazing. It's so comfortable. We could just sit in it like a warm bath all day long until our skin dissolves. Uh, for us to behave as followers of Jesus any other way, to treat people differently to that is, is, is not acceptable. It, it flouts God's law of love. So, James, we're all the way into chapter 2, is saying, let's not discriminate. It's inconsistent with faith in Jesus. It ignores God's special concern for the poor and for the outcast and for the last and the least and the lost. And it flouts God's law of love, so just stop it. And then he runs off with verse 12. He says this. He says, instead, basically, instead of doing all of that, Discrimination nonsense. He says, try this. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And really what he's saying here is, like: how can those of us who have experienced the mercy of God, we've encountered the kindness of God, how can we, having... Received so much. How can we not then demonstrate that same mercy, that same kindness to those people the Lord puts around us? Whether we understand them or not. Whether, in fact, um, we agree with them or not. Why? Why? Should we expect God to show compassion to us, to people like you and me, uh, when we know that we are about as poor and helpless as it gets, because we know who we are? Why would we expect God to show us compassion if we are not willing to show compassion to those people around us who seem poor and helpless to us? You see, God's love, God's mercy, God's grace, God's kindness... It has been so freely and abundantly lavished upon us. And um, that love and that mercy and that kindness and that grace, just the endless, reckless goodness of God, has been given to us. It's not been given to us like in a little bottle. You know, it, um, it hasn't been sort of presented in this little bottle that we kind of keep up up and we sip from time to time and we're feeling a little low. It's like oh, my little tonic. You know, it's like a hip flask. That's not how it works. That's not what it is. It's like it's it's like um, a, one of those great big firemen's hoses. You know, that have like ten people sort of holding it against the fire hydrant because it's like there's just this torrent of love and kindness and grace and mercy that's just like soaking literally everybody, drenching everything, and ultimately rescuing from the clutches of the burning fire the lives of those people who experience and encounter it, and the lives of those people that we encounter every single day. Colossians. Says this. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with. It's like wake up in the morning and put on. You know, put on the full armor of God. Yes, but also clothe yourself with. Put on compassion and kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. These are the garms of the Christian. See, I'm right down there. I'm in the street. We wear, this is the clothing, this is the the uniform of followers of Jesus. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Bear with one another, it goes on in Colossians. Bear with one another and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. (sighs) Deal with it. Whatever grievances, whatever separates you, whatever differences, whatever struggles, battles, things you don't agree with, theologies you hold, opinions you don't agree with, ways of behaving, just... Just put it all down and forgive one another as the Lord forgave you. And by so doing, what we do in that moment, instead of retreating and cutting ourselves off and separating ourselves off from one another because of our differences, we're actually just literally showering one another in the love and the mercy and the grace and the kindness that we have received. Freely you've received, freely give. It's like, ah, oh, how can I judge anyone? Look at me. God has been so kind to me. I just now want to just be as kind as I possibly can and share and spill out and spew out. and Not machine gun. Uh, hose. <laughs> Sorry, just got, just got carried away for a moment there. That was hose noise. Who said machine gun? Like, just not. Just not possible. <laughs> Compassion and kindness, and humility and gentleness and patience, and just literally do that with whoever crosses our paths. Whoever the Lord puts in your way this day, this week—widows and orphans, the homeless, uh, the the prisoner, the elderly. You know, confined to their homes, those suffering emotional pain, those suffering from economic deprivation, those who are physically ill, those who are mentally ill, those people that you get and those people that you really, really don't. Don't show favoritism. Just soak them all. Saturate everyone with the mercy and the love and the goodness of God that you yourself have so freely received. Let this church be a place. Let this church continue. Let me just correct that. Let this church continue to be a place where everyone is welcome. You guys are amazing. You, you extend the welcome of the kingdom of God week in, week out. see it all the time. So this isn't, this isn't a, a criticism at all. This is just the Bible. This is just a reminder. Keep on doing what you're doing because you're doing it so well. But let's continue to be a church where everyone is welcomed. Everyone is made to feel welcomed. Let's be a church both here and abroad. We gather together so that God can scatter us out. But in the highways and the byways where you find yourself, in your workplaces, at the school gate, in your homes with your families, wherever it is, um, let's be people filled to overflowing with the empowering presence of the Spirit of God. Let's spill out and leak out and shower every single person we meet with that same mercy and kindness and abundance. Let's, Let's... Let's decide and let's choose that this week, every single person we meet, wherever that may be, here, at the yard, at work, at school, wherever, that every single person we meet, every single encounter we have, that person is going to leave that encounter sodden, soaked, drenched in the glory of the Lord. Amen. Why do you stand?